Anyway, we're not here to talk about wrestling. That's not what we do. It could be. Well, we could do one on British wrestling, I suppose. We no. could totally do one on British wrestling. We just have to, you know, skate over the whole Jimmy Savile thing. <laughs> all giant haystacks all the time. That's our gimmick. <laughs> Two hours of discussion about giant haystacks. It's a big week. lad. I mean, I guess we could cover the British Bulldog because that is a tragic story. Like quite a lot of wrestling in the like early to mid nineties. Yeah, but I mean, a tragic story. specifically the British Bulldogs and you know um, Dynamite Kid that the the story is just so heartbreaking because even when he had his highlight when he won was it the Intercontinental Championship in yeah. Wembley Arena yeah. he got himself so blottoed that yeah. he doesn't remember anything about the match and he was basically a dummy that Bret Hart threw around and made look good <laughs> because that's what Bret Hart does and he has no memory of the match and that was that was like his defining match he had no memory of it to the day he died it was just like okay did that happen yeah you missed you know 80,000 people chanting your name in Wembley Arena hey up I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out so let's get started with okay this story begins in the Georgian era. Mm-hmm. And your three words. Yorkshire. Boo. Leather. Mm. Embankment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That sounds like a fetish club. Yorkshire Leather Embankment. The Yorkshire Leather Embankment. That that's, that's like, you're going to tell me this is a story about one of the first gay bars, right? <laughs> No. Oh. However, <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to bear in mind, the first line may give you that impression even more. Okay. Okay, so, George Leather Jr. <laughs> a normal name for a normal man, was born in Yorkshire on October 5th, 1786. No one's normal in Yorkshire. Continue. His dad, George Sr. Was... George Leather Sr. Oh, my God. <laughs> if he was born, if he was around today and he had the name George Leather Senior, if he didn't become either a drag queen or some sort of gay bar impresario, like a legend in the, in the gay bar scene, it, it just it wouldn't be right. Anyway, continue. Uh, George Leather Senior, he, he did have a job. He was a chief <laughs> colliery engineer and junior served an apprenticeship with him. Well, which... fine, fine Yorkshire jobs. Okay. Uh, when I say apprenticeship, free child labour, um, before heading out in his 30s to start his own engineering company. So his dad kept him as free labour till he's 30. Classic Yorkshireman. Uh, that's, that's one hell of an apprenticeship, considering well, he probably started at 14. So he had... Yeah, but you, you don't need to pay him, do you? No, you do not. <laughs> he's, he started... That's just good sense, that is. <laughs> I'd have kept him till he was 60, but he broke free. <laughs> he overpowered me. <laughs> well, he did. He, he headed out uh, to start his own engineering company, which he rather uninventedly called George Leather and Son. Though sadly, his own son was not called George Jr. Jr., but John. <sighs> John mm. Leather. Fair enough. The new company built up a reputation for quality work and George was able to land a plum contract as the resident engineer of Ghoul Docks. Ghoul had docks? It had docks that needed a resident live-in engineer. 
Fair enough. Uh, he was also admitted to the Institute of Civil Engineers, which is when you really know you're doing well. Well, when, when some poshos in London want a piece of you. <laughs> yeah. And as is traditional for civil engineers of the period, he began designing bridges. And wearing a stovepipe hat. Probably. <laughs> uh, assisted by his son and his nephew, who were serving apprenticeships under him at the time. So whereas his dad had got one family member <laughs> for free labour, he'd gone and got two. So he he he'd taken the Yorkshire and like enhanced it. He he doubled his his free labour workforce, <laughs> which was yeah, good going. He's working gotta, smart, not hard. Yeah, got to applaud that man. Uh, <laughs> some of the bridges he he built, um, well, they were mainly in the the uh, sort of Yorkshire area. He he really did sort of stay local, but uh, he did build a couple in. Leads, including the Victoria Bridge, which is now a Grade Two listed building. So well done, George. Mm. That's uh, about as close to immortality as any non-royal or aristo will get, I suppose. Yeah. So he's 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 in his thirties. He's set up his own company. He's got a load of free labour. Um, he's building Quite a few amazing shit hot bridges. Yeah. Things were going well for him in his middle age. That's that's what I'm trying to get across. Yeah. Our he was, George he was, is doing he was well. A settled and established man. He was. Uh, and actually, he went most of the way through um, Middle Age, and he was, he was doing great, because it was 1838, when he was 52 years old, that George... I'd imagine that's, that must be quite old for somebody who worked down pit. Well, no, he was a, he was an engineer, wasn't he? I well, mean, yeah, but I imagine during his apprenticeship, he spent some time down pit. Well, as a colliery engineer, you probably had to inspect some of your work, but I doubt it was like um, daily excursions down to the depths of the mines. Yeah, mainly probably, it was... probably no risk of the black lung. Oh, very much not. This the this was a, a comfortably middle class family. Yeah. I mean, even so, fifties in eighteen thirty—that's quite good, considering that they had no idea what medicine was, as we understand it. <laughs> Maybe he was just lucky. Yeah, you are talking about a world where splinter could kill you because infection protocol and indeed antibiotics didn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Splinter free at 52 years old, George Leather was approached by some commissioners from Holmfirth. Holmfirth. Today, it is known as the place that Last of the Summer Wine was filmed. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) But back then it was not known as the place that... Last of the Summer Wine was filmed because <laughs> there were no cameras. <laughs> it was just a place where Compo lived. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it, it, this. This actually slightly predates the first series of Last of the Summer Wine by maybe two, three years. I can't, I can't be precise on that. But it, Compo and Wallace's voice were uh, wandering around. <laughs> yeah, just waiting to for filming to start. Being young men. <laughs> Well, uh, middle-aged. <laughs> uh, the commissioners of Holmfirth, they wanted to know if George would be interested in designing a new dam. That's a step, is that a step up from bridges? I don't, know how, I don't know how the hierarchy of this goes. Well, it was something that George had never designed before. Um, so whether it was because it was considered a more prestigious um, undertaking or whether it was just, ooh. He was up for it yeah, kind of thing. a distraction. He was happy to accept the job, uh, said, don't you worry, good people of Honforth. I will build this dam for you. It's going to be a good mm. dam. Fair enough. <clears throat> Almost immediately, it became clear that the Honforth commissioners were not particularly good at commissioning things. George mm. couldn't get a clear answer of if he was just to design the dam or if he was to oversee construction as well as design the dam. <laughs> and the commissioners, no matter how often he asked this rather simple question, you'd think, 
couldn't really provide any kind of answer. They just kind of, hmm, yes, yes, we will need it constructing as well, won't we? Hmm, yes, anyway, lunch, lunch, were, yes, were, lunch, lunch. Were they basically trying to back him into bu- building it without paying him for it? Oh, we never actually said you had to build it. <laughs> Thanks anyway, but we're not paying for it. <laughs> I, I think reading between the lines, they're like, well, we probably better get a good engineer to design it. But could we save money on the construction? If if we look at the plans and we think that's quite easy, could we get someone else in to do it? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they also, as well as not confirming the job that they actually wanted him to do, the parameters of the job, they didn't want to be tied down on how much George was going to be paid. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, says he's, says he's going to make some errors. He's making some errors while he's into his comfortable middle age. Maybe his blind lust for damn building was. Uh... <laughs> well, all, all they kept telling him was that it was really important that it be finished as soon as possible. So it needed to be expedited, uh, and they pressured him for the plans constantly. So he's mm. asking for money, and they were just rolling straight over that comment and go, "No, no, no!" But when are they ready? We need to see them. We need them now. We needed them last <laughs> week. Honestly, this is really important. Incidentally, you haven't copyrighted them, have you? <laughs> it's very important that you don't copyright them. Either way, a bemused George, he delivered the plans in under a year and was asked by the commissioners what he thought of a bid from a company called Sharps to complete the actual construction. So they finally kind of showed the hand once they had the, the, the designs that they didn't really want to pay him to build it as well. But they would like him to sort of have a look to see about the bids that they were getting for the work, which is a bit of a, a shit move. Yeah. Now, we're not going to give you the job, but can you kind of veto who we should have? <laughs> so they're just like classic, sort of way ahead of the curve, terrible corporate employers. It seems so. But George, he, you know, he didn't mind. He was going to get paid for the plans. So he had a look mm. over the proposal that Sharps had put together. And he gave the advice that they had severely underestimated the cost needed to do a good job, warning that any cutting of corners increased the likelihood of the dam failing, which would have major consequences for everyone living downstream, which was the <laughs> entire population of Holmforth. Because they were building this upriver of, of the village. Well, I mean, <laughs> building it downriver sounds like it'd be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I feel it, it just needs saying that these are the commissioners for Holmforth. And he's explicitly told them, do not cut corners on the design I've given you, because all the people you represent would be in mortal danger if you do. The commissioners thanked him. They thanked him for the plans and for his advice. Then they paid him a random amount of money. (laughs) Threw some darts at a board. They They had a whip round in a hat in the offices, handed that to him. And they went ahead and gave the job of constructing it to Sharps. Mm. As a result of this decision, George decided he would be best distancing himself from the whole timber operation. So he was like, I, I gave them perfectly serviceable designs. Yep. Um, what they do with those designs, that's it's up no to them. It's no business of mine. It's no business yeah. of mine. I'm going to get back to doing what I do best. And he designed a few more bridges and some really nice buildings. He just got back to his normal life, but his conscience started pricking at him. And after trying to ignore it for two years, he began visiting the construction site for the new dam in his own free time to provide <laughs> advice and support to the construction crews. Because, <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, you've got to respect the kind of like commitment to a good job. Mm. 
But on the other hand, this is going to turn bad at some point and he's going to be landed with the blame. I can just feel that one coming down the line. <laughs> well, that's how this god-awful world works. People who try their best get shafted. Hmm, we'll see. But <laughs> crucially, the two-year gap where he was trying to ignore his conscience meant that George had not been present when the foundations had been laid, which apparently is a pretty important step for any building project, but especially one that was going to be put under such large, constant pressure as a dam might be. <laughs> so he didn't see that bit. Everything from that point he was quite happy with because he was, you know, almost micromanaging. He was site managing despite not being paid <laughs> to be a site manager because he was so worried. Yeah. Uh, it was clear to George that shops, they weren't up to the task and he was less than surprised when the dam began leaking as soon as it was filled in 1843. The commissioners, they leapt into action and fired Sharps <laughs> after they'd been paid in full for the construction uh, and they didn't really want to spend time trying to fix their mistakes anyway. So it was possibly the best thing that could have happened for Sharps. Yeah. They got paid in full for a shoddy job and then told to piss off. Uh, which, yeah, which very, ex yeah, very explicitly legally separated them from any consequences. Yeah. <laughs> You accepted it. <laughs> you paid us for it. We're done. Yeah, um, we're going we're gonna to go off and probably dissolve our construction company because we're really bad at this. <laughs> um, the, com the commissioners, they hired a new company called Porters who tried to fix the dam for a further two years with no success. And George returned again in 1845 to provide more free advice on how oh. to fix the issues and was again politely ignored. That he decided... He did. He at this point, he's like, "I've done all I can do." You know, I've mm. I tried to help at every stage, despite not being paid for anything other than the plans, which were perfect. Yeah. So he walked away. That's the first good decision he's made yeah. since he <clears throat> took the money and left the first time. Well, over the next seven years, the commissioners came to the decision that the leaks were just part of the dam's character. Uh, and as a result, they didn't... come see the wonderful leaky dam. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to waste any more money paying construction companies to try and fix it. Um, ironically, the cost of trying to repair it and getting porters in had taken the overall cost way above what George Leather had suggested was a reasonable budget for the building of his design. Oh my god! Like, yeah, I'm going back to what I said earlier. The Homeforth Commissioners are basically the world's first corporate. Employers, yes, sir. We'll, we'll, we'll over-engineer. I'll, I'll we'll cleverly. Sorry, not over-engineer. We'll cleverly screw somebody out of a little bit of money and end up costing ourselves far more to fix it. Fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, George. George had said, "If you'd have, if you'd have hired me, perchance to to get everything, it'd be fine. Yeah, you be fine, idiots. He hadn't. But seven years, you know, it, sure it leaks, but that's <laughs> it fine. hadn't fallen over yet. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> At uh, 1 a.m., February the 5th, 1852. Right. When most of the residents of the Digley Valley were tucked up in bed. Except for Compo, who was wandering around in a wheelbarrow somewhere. <laughs> well, it's a good job he was up and about because it was at that moment that the dam finally collapsed. Fully collapsed, not just like sprung a really big leak. 86 million gallons of water... Jesus. which is nearly 400 million litres, rushed down the river home. The wall Oof. of water killed 81 people and destroyed four mills, 10 dye houses, three drying stoves, 27 cottages, seven tradesmen's houses, seven shops, seven bridges crossing the river home, 10 warehouses, eight barns and stables. 
it's a it's a nice way of saying it destroyed the livelihoods of everyone who didn't die. Yeah. <clears throat> so it either, the, the economic consequences were big. Oh, for the people <laughs> for the people of the Diggly Valley, this was this was a day to remember. Armageddon, essentially. Because yeah. those are those who were lucky enough to wake up woke up to find that they no longer had places to live, jobs to do, or most of their family members. Delightful. It was an absolute... Full-on total yeah, disaster. it was. Amazingly, at the inquest, George Leather Jr. was found to be partially responsible for allowing the dam to be used when it was known to be dangerous, in spite of the fact that the dam he designed would have worked perfectly if the people executing the designs were even halfway competent. It's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I mean, no, it's not. But because that's exactly how things work in this goddamn country. But Well, the thing is, uh, the contractors and the commissioners were also blamed, but because they were all organisations rather than individuals, no, no prose- single person. Yeah, right. No prosecutions were brought, despite the jury stating explicitly that the decisions of the commissioners amounted to manslaughter. It's like, Delightful. this group of people have committed manslaughter, but weirdly, because they're a group yeah. of people... We can't actually single any one of them out. Yeah. Yeah. We're, and we're not allowed I, to go for all of them. Yeah, yeah to which I would have said, let's, let's just put them all in the dock together. Yeah, I believe that you can do that nowadays, but, uh, but I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. As an individual, it was very easy to point the finger at George. You know, I knew he, that I knew that poor bugger was going to get screwed up. I knew it. I could feel that one coming. His reputation was destroyed, and he retired within three years of the collapse at the age of sixty-nine. Nice, poor bugger. And lived a further fourteen years before dying in Wakefield. In yeah. Wakefield, at the age of eighty-three. This means the only thing I know about Wakefield is that shit band, The Cramps, came out of Wakefield. Well, he, he lived to eighty-three, though. That's pretty good. And the other thing that living to eighty-three allowed him was that he was alive to see another leather get into a bit of bother over a dam. No, really? <laughs> because George's nephew, John Towleton Leather, yeah, <laughs> I'll let that name sink in. <laughs> it's just, you know, so many things that belong in a bathhouse. <laughs> John Towleton Leather had apprenticed with his uncle before starting his own engineering company in Sheffield. By the time George Leather Jr. was designing his dam, John yeah. had already overseen the construction of five reservoirs, which naturally oh, all required the building of five separate dams. So, yeah. again, why, if you're going to go to a leather, did the people, you know, of Holmforth yeah. go to the leather who was famed for designing bridges rather than the leather who had a lot of experience designing dams? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go out on a wild limb here and say that it was probably because they were like, mm, if we get the guy who knows his value at designing dance, he's going he's, he's gonna to ask for a fair price. And we're not interested in paying a fair price. So let's get the guy who might want to design dance, but has never really done it before. Oh, he's the, he's the very fellow you want, isn't he? Yeah. Cheap. <laughs> so all five. Cheap and desperate. All five. That's the guy. <laughs> All five of the ones what, that... What were you laughing at? No, I'm just... Cheap. Just cheap. Just cheap. <laughs> What's what you look for when you're building a dam? To hold, to hold, to hold what was it, like 400 million litres of water or something? Yeah, that what was you all. Want, what do you want to cheap out on that? That sounds like something that's a good idea to cheap out on. Mm. Jesus Christ. Well, John Towleton Leather, the five dams he'd already designed 
that's, none of them had fallen apart. They still exist to this day. Oh, cool. As the Redmere and Crooks Valley Reservoirs, yeah. which, again, goes to show he knew what he was doing. So he built these things in the mid-1800s, and they're still providing the people of the Crooks Valley and Sheffield and the surrounding area with fresh drinking water to this day. Well, good for Sheffield. Mm, well, even with all of that fresh water available, Sheffield needed more. <laughs> Thirsty people she- in Sheffield. Sheffield always needs more yeah. greedy buggers. Well, you see, in just over 50 years since 1800, the population of the city and the surrounding area had quadrupled from 45,000 to over 185,000 people. Christ, how much steel did everyone need? I suppose lots. Everything a was a made hell of steel. a lot, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those industrial revolutionary kind of things. <laughs> uh, Would we make out of steel everything, old chap? Yeah. Everything. <laughs> when, when you're called the Steel City, you've From really ships got to, to cups. <laughs> well, they they had a boon. Yeah. Boon times were here, and they needed more water. And you know, a few years after a leather design dam had collapsed, killing eighty-one people. Obviously, mm. that was a lot of water that wasn't then being stored uh, and made available <laughs> for drinking water because it was just now flowing back down the river like it always had past yeah. the the crying residents of the Digley Valley. Wait, did, did they... Did, are you, tell, you were about to tell me that they hired his nephew to build a dam in the same place? No, not in the same place, although that would have right. been brilliant. Uh, no. <laughs> I um, thought that was when I was <clears> heading <throat> for one horrible moment. <laughs> oh, the ignominy. <laughs> now, the, the Sheffield Waterworks Company, they approached um, John Leather to design a dam at Dale Dyke, which was a slightly different place. So mm. I think this is... You sort of look into the north-west of Sheffield... I, I mean, you can say this. I've I like, I've been to Sheffield once in my life. Okay. For a university interview, I passed, and I never went back. <laughs> well done. They're still waiting for you. <laughs> no, they're not. I, I I didn't get the A level grades. It was it was a bad time. Anyway. <laughs> That's a lovely, haunting little look into your childhood. No, sorry, not your childhood. <laughs> yes, he was a protege. He got <laughs> got there at ten. Um, yeah. So they they hired um, John Leather to design a dam at Dale Dyke. John got to work on the designs, uh, and mm-hmm. construction was able to begin in 1860. Unlike his uncle John... Uh, uh, unlike his uncle John... George. Unlike his uncle... I should have had a comma there. Unlike yeah. his uncle, John was clear about his role in the project. John was in overall charge, but he had a resident engineer called John Gunson, and he'd oversee the day-to-day construction, so he had eyes on the works all the time. Yeah. And he was able to veto anything that he didn't like. He was Sounds able a lot to more yeah. together. Uh construction took just around three years and works were completed in April eighteen sixty three. Jolly good. And you know, probably seeing what had happened to his uncle, um, John Leather, he wanted to be doubly sure that everything was gonna go perfectly for this dam. So right. him and Gunson they spent three months quality assuring their work, three months going over everything with a fine tooth comb before Kick, fu- kicking the bricks. Oh yeah, every single brick got kicked. <laughs> <laughs> As they kicked it, they just marked it with a piece of chalk. All eight billion of them. <laughs> and then it rained, and they realised the error and started again. Um, yeah, so they finally agreed after three months that the dam was safe and the reservoir could begin. To be filled. But it turned out they built it out of straw. 
That would that would have been fine. You'd have noticed that mistake within seconds, wouldn't you? Oh no. It's gone. <laughs> I think the problem is we needed something that was less water permeable. So we needed something almost watertight would have been better for this. It was a valuable, valuable art project. <laughs> That being said, you know, beaver's dams are pretty damn good and it's just twigs and More twigs. bits and stuff, yeah. So More. maybe what they really needed to do was replace the straw with twigs and that'd be better. Probably better, yes. And then good that, enough, no. That got washed away and they finally moved on to brick. Yeah. And then the, this is the, the story. chief engineer won BB Wolf. Yeah. This is the origin of the story of the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. I'm surprised you got it so early on, to be honest. <laughs> So they, they decided it could be filled. Um, and it takes a while to fill a reservoir that has 690 million gallons of water, as you could imagine. Hmm. Well, currently it had space for 690 million gallons. Yeah. In fact, the reservoir was not full until the 11th of March, 1964. 1964. 1864. 1864. <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles are there writing a song about it. <laughs> the problem this was they were filling it for a long time. <laughs> they were filling it by a pipette. <laughs> just three people from Sheffield passing a pipette <laughs> up and down the hill oh, it's got to be a better way no sorry you're right it was 1864 yeah. um, so throughout the course of nearly a year Leather mm. and Gunson would continually check for stress on the dam make sure that everything was okay they were so how are you feeling buddy you're holding up okay yeah. Whew, a lot of water a lot of pressure yeah, could do it a holiday constantly making sure that everything was going the way that they would expect it to you know a little bit of settling but it's going to be okay yeah so finally the 11th of march 1864 it's full and as it turned out this was the only day that the reservoir was ever full oh, oh. what happened well, John Gunson was called to the site early in the afternoon because a local quarryman, who just happened to be going past, had noticed a little, little tiny, almost barely noticeable crack had formed in the embankment. Oh, just just a little one. I mean, immediately you hear quarrymen. My first question yeah. would be, were you trying to quarry it? <laughs> the stone there, <laughs> free for the taking. <laughs> I've got my chisels right here. I just, I just love quarrying. I know it's bad. I'm addicted. <laughs> hit it once and heard an ominous rumble. It was like, oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> We've done a bad thing. <laughs> when we found the site manager. we better tell someone. <laughs> there's a crack and we don't know how it formed. <laughs> Quickly, lad, scarper, scarper. Who left, who left this chisel in it? <laughs> well, It's got your name on it, Dave. <laughs> uh, it's funny that you should mention that. Uh, he'd reported it was only wide enough. This was the... Um, the quarryman, he said, it's only wide enough to stick the blade of a penknife in, which suggests that he He's saw a crack in the dam and immediately got his penknife out, stuck it in, and gave it a little wiggle. Um, Amazing. Yeah. So with all with all the preservation, <laughs> the Victorian society was known for. How shall we investigate the sciences? Well, mainly by electrocuting them, attempting to blow them up, or stab them. Yes, yeah, quite. So <laughs> well, he'd, he'd stabbed it and he said, yeah, you could barely fit your penknife in. So that's okay. John Gunson at this time is thinking, okay, micro crack. It's probably not that deep. You know, it's, we'll Just get some cement in there. Be yeah, fine. we'll just do some pointing. We'll be right. By the time John arrived, about an hour after this had been noticed, uh, it was wide enough to stick a finger into. 
which again gives you the idea that John Gunson's first way of checking how Shove bad it was was to stick his finger in, stick his finger in the dike. That's what he did. Um, despite that, they called George Talton Leather, and he was like, "Nope, I don't put nothing in dikes." Well, they hadn't even bothered. To, you know, they, they didn't want to bother um, the leathers at this point. Any of them, they like, they've suffered enough. Yeah. Let's let's check how bad this is. Uh, and John, he actually, you know, tried to convince himself nothing to worry about. Yeah, After yeah, all, yeah. he had been noticed, and he and Leather did have time to come up with some kind of fix. It wasn't a massive catastrophic failure; it was a crack. And yeah, sure, it got a bit bigger. Yeah, I mean, like you but, say that, but like put it another way: from the width of a pen knife to the width of a finger, I'm calling that maybe a two to three hundred percent increase in one hour. You know, if that graph continues upwards. <laughs> yeah, but does it have to? It may just be settling. That might be it. You know, yeah, that okay. that could be the end of the stresses that, you know, it's just settling. It's fine. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, he, he convinced himself they'd be able to fix it. But just to be safe, because, again, John Gunson and John yeah. Leather, they are calm professionals who've done this before. Mm-hmm. He said, what we'll do is we'll open the extra valves in the middle of the embankment to allow more water to flow out into the River Loxley. Down on towards the, pressure. the yeah, northern yeah. suburbs of Sheffield, reduce the pressure, bring the water levels down. That'll help. Yeah. You know, it, the dam logical. won't be working at, at full capacity. It won't be doing everything that they want us to do, but we can we can go and think up a fix. It'll be mm-hmm. perfectly fine. It seems rational. Yeah. It was getting late by this stage, because this <laughs> had taken him all afternoon. Yeah. Thorough inspections and opening of valves and, you know, checking... And rechecking and sticking his fingers and thumbs and toes and whatever else. We really take the there. mobile phone for granted, don't we? We really do. Uh, and a gale was blowing in. So he decided not to do anything that afternoon. Uh, well, yeah, John, he took one oh final look at the crack um, and did accept that it was now quite a bit wider. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. So he mm, tried to convince himself that he could go home for the night and then had a change of heart because John Gunson, he's he's a good good man. Uh, so it sounds like he, he, he wanted to be lazy, but his conscience wouldn't let him, is where I'm going with this. <laughs> well, it, it might have been that he kept looking at it and going, they'll, they'll probably blame me. I really wish I had spent <laughs> three months inspecting every brick. And yeah, it saying, sort of becomes, it becomes your responsibility yeah, at that point. <laughs> because now they're going to say, I was incompetent. I don't even have the who could have known excuse left to me because me, me, I should have known. I really should have known. I went looking. (laughs) So he decided they needed to try and drain some more water quite quickly. Or the crack was probably going to continue expanding with uh, potential consequences. Catastrophic effects. So he took the decision to blow up a weir uh, in order to drain water from the reservoir safely and quickly. Oh, dear. But... He kind of waited too long for this because, like I say, a gale storm had blown in. Yeah. And it was getting dark. Um, So they they set up to blow the weir. But one of the things that gunpowder doesn't particularly like... Dampness. Yeah, it's dampness. And they weren't able to to run a trail um, to the gunpowder without it getting damp. And, you know, John Gunson, he's not stupid enough to... Um, yeah. be, be too close when he blows up a weir. This isn't uh, Tom Hanks at the end of Saving Private Ryan <laughs> blowing the bridge, you know, whatever. 
I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice myself. John Gunston, he wanted a solution that allowed him to live as, as well as the people of Sheffield. Yeah. Um, with no other means of relieving the pressure, though, it was almost inevitable that the crack would expand further. Mm, it doesn't sound like a good thing. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not a good thing. <laughs> it's, it was, in fact, a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, at, at this point, I'm assuming he'd, he'd finally got in contact with John Leather, explained the situation, and John Leather was probably shouting... Slightly upset. He was shouting at the person who brought this message to him <laughs> that he should have been told this. At about the time, the quarry man had, had been sticking a, a blade into this crack yeah. rather than now when John Gunson was saying, well, really, what I'm telling you is it's already happened. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, it's it's gone beyond. Ooh, heck, let's put on a cuppa and think about it, hasn't it? Oh, <laughs> what happened to Sheffield? Sheffield, you say? Never heard of it. <laughs> well, the the other problem was they'd left it so late that the good, sorry, the good people of Sheffield and the surrounding yeah, areas. I, I, w- I would choke on trying to say that as well. It's fine. Good, good <laughs> scum. <laughs> it's okay. The, the good kind. Welcoming people of Sheffield. Um, what? what? <laughs> they, they'd all gone to bed. <laughs> and you without know. phones or TVs or radios, there was yeah. very little that could be done. Because it was 11.30 at night that the crack did expand rapidly. In yeah. fact, it would possibly be a more accurate word to use to say that it exploded. <laughs> <laughs> the French have an expression for this, and it is "oh shit." <laughs> well, just just to put it in perspective, the the amount of water was eight times that that devastated Digley Valley twelve years before, and it was flowing straight towards Sheffield, not yes. not some not some rural valley in bumfuck nowhere. Yeah, that was it was a much more densely populated urban centre, and. Once again, most of the people living there were tucked up asleep and completely oblivious to the impending disaster. Because I mean, if, you, if you're going to get swept away by a horrible tide of death, I'd want to do it asleep. Like, seeing it come in wouldn't make me happy. But you feel like one of the things that um, John Gunson failed to do or could have done uh, in the afternoon when he could see that it had expanded to the size of a finger would have been to send somebody down to Sheffield to let... The yeah. you know the people maybe abandoned the... Sheffield now. <laughs> well, just just be aware that this is happening, guys. You know, maybe be on amber warning. Just be on alert. Maybe yeah. have someone posted further upstream with with a light to be able to signal <laughs> stuff. That would be useful at this stage. But no, no, he left it too late. Um, the tidal wave, because that's that's what it was. Isn't it technically a bore? <coughs> is a river. Or is that a tidal thing as well? Uh, a bore is when the tide's coming up, isn't it? Oh, right, okay. Uh, and it's meeting something coming down, so it forms a standing wave. Yeah. This this was not standing. This was moving um, rapidly, and it <laughs> swept through Hillsborough before joining the River Don. This forced the water south, directly towards Sheffield city centre. Christ. Now, luckily, most of the city centre of Sheffield is on a hill, or it would have been completely destroyed. <laughs> the flood water was then turned north again, uh, yeah. and headed off towards Rotherham. Oh, well, nothing of value was lost then. Amazingly, the first house in the path of the flood managed to evacuate. <laughs> How many others did, though? <laughs> yeah, well, they only did because they were so close that a member of the engineering team 
had managed, managed to, to run down. down the valley <laughs> and awoken them, shouting, It's coming! It's coming! <laughs> Ominous. They didn't know what was coming. It. <laughs> but he sounded very serious about it. So they decided uh, to get out and get to higher ground. Mm. Uh, of course, they hadn't had time to get dressed. Uh, and so I mean, how advanced is them to start playing Stevie Wonder songs? That's pretty good. Well, they, they, they hadn't managed sorry. to get... Sorry. <laughs> That's how my brain works. I'm really sorry, everybody. <laughs> We've cut across this tale of disaster going... What a good song that is. <laughs> they managed to save their collection of LPs, uh, but they hadn't had the time to get dressed. So they were left standing in gale force winds and lashing rain in whatever night clothes they were wearing. The, I mean, this was the Victorian age, so their night clothes were probably what would pass for, you know, regular day clothes nowadays. <laughs> I had, I had, but all I had was but my night trousers, night shirt, night cap, night overcoat, and night shoes. <laughs> but my night galoshes, I, in my hubris, forgot to put them on. <laughs> Damn you, hubris. <laughs> hubris being my third dog. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to save the dog instead. Bless them, they probably would as well. But they had to stand there on higher ground and watch as their house was literally washed away. In the, it was there one second, and then it was not there. This wasn't a case of it's withstood for a second or yeah, two. It, it yeah, just it, disappeared. Yeah, I watched them. It was never there. It'd be like watching those um, videos from that um, tsunami in. Oh, the Japanese one. That? Oh, that was. The Pacific one. The yeah. One where, yeah. The one, where it, the one where it was kind of like, I mean, maybe not because that one was kind of impressive because it was like, oh, it's just a bit, oh, God, the beach is gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was it was very sort of creep, but then quick, slow but quick is a weird... No, you know, no, it was. You see the video. You watch the video and it was almost like some of the people who got caught up in it, they were watching it because it seemed to be moving so slowly. And then when they tried mm. to run, they realised they couldn't outrun it. Yeah. In we, the most terrifying way. should have run five way, minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're already dead. We're just, yeah. you know... So the first house, they yeah. lived. Gone. Ah, with, house gone, people lived. Well, house gone, people lived. Without a similar warning, because Fair unfortunately trade. the engineer, he, he'd blown uh, at that stage and he was just left standing, <laughs> holding <laughs> holding a stitch I've done, that he developed. I've done my job. <laughs> right, well, he'd saved someone at least. He was holding his stitch and he was just watching it go past, um, hmm. blowing hard. Um, the people of Marlin Bridge... They were caught completely unawares, and in just a few hundred yards, the flood waters claimed the lives of 102 people, and over Jesus. 20 houses were swept away without a trace. Marlin Bridge stopped existing within the space of a minute. Wow. You know, this little village just gone. This is why messing with water is for professionals. <laughs> These guys were professionals. Yeah, I know, but they weren't clearly weren't very good. <laughs> they were, they built things that lasted. You know, this was this was not good. But you know, five out of six dams are still standing today. God damn it! Not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I agree. I killed one out of four people that I met. <laughs> Come on, what do you want from me? <laughs> 75% of people went about their day undeaded. <laughs> undeaded. Oh, God, that sounds like three... So you murdered one and the other three were raised as zombies. <laughs> the water. Yes, back to that. About, uh, it village hit, gone, 102 village people gone. dead. It hit Sheffield 
mm. causing utter devastation before carrying ever onwards down the valley. The mm. floodwaters were so intense that some of the bodies from Marlin Bridge were eventually found 27 miles away in Doncaster. Ah, Doncaster. Mm. Home so, of the world's weirdest accent. This, this, this water... Uh, this wave of water was causing devastation in Doncaster, which was about what, 30, <laughs> 30 to 32 miles away from the original um, mm. dam failure. That is a long way. Yeah. And as the people of Doncaster would say, devastation in Doncaster. That, that probably would have been Clarkson. it. <laughs> that would have been the headline. It, completely ignoring what had happened in <laughs> Sheffield and Marlin Bridge. Devastation in Doncaster. People's shoes got wet. Doncaster is the centre of the world. It, Donny. <laughs> I don't have enough evidence to dispute that fact. Let's let's go with it. Doncaster is the centre of the world. Good on you, people of Doncaster, having the good sense to live in the centre of the world. Well, you know, climate change will affect them last. <laughs> Nobody from Doncaster died. I will point out the floodwaters had um, lost, lost a significant amount of yeah. power by the time it got to Doncaster. In Doncaster, well, it was more of a a mild inconvenience of having dead bodies possibly washed <laughs> into your basement. <laughs> More so than your own mortal peril. <laughs> Mother, there's dead ones in the basement. Well, <laughs> what's going on? I guess we're a funeral home now, son. Here we go. It's <laughs> the Doncaster way. <laughs> Make lemonade from lemons. If we embalm them, we can charge relatives. They can't say no. <laughs> Otherwise, we won't release bodies from cellar. That's the way. <laughs> there were also. Um, no, so overall, because hmm. we've got to do numbers, uh, mm-hmm. it is thought that up to 300 people were killed by the flood. Oh, the God. oldest was 78. That's pretty damn old for 1860-odd. I know. That's that's not the one that upsets me. The one that upsets me is that the youngest was only two days old. Oh, Christ. Mm. So literally, was born while they started filling the dam. And that's died. how young they were. And died as, as soon a as result of the dam emptying. <laughs> There were also over 700 animals reported killed and masses of property damage, including four mills, 17 workshops and warehouses, three shops, 39 houses, and two beer houses totally destroyed. A further 17 mills, 11 workshops and workhouses, 15 shops, 376 houses, and 22 beer houses were partially destroyed, uh, and over 4,000 houses were flooded but not partially, not not flooded to the extent where it could be partially destroyed. Just like unlivable. Yeah, just stinky. Yeah, just you're you're gonna. It's gonna take a while for you to clean that. Ah, good. Because yeah. what the slums needed was more stench. Yeah, yeah, and standing stagnant water. <laughs> Delightful. Especially cholera. Yeah. It's not just for London anymore. Well, this was still back in the day when the, there were arguments about whether it was uh, bad smells or bad water. And most people were holding to the belief that it was the smell. So they were probably holding, uh, you know, a perfume-soaked rag over their mouths while wading through the water with open cuts and all those kinds of things, because at least they weren't going to get sick. So I don't actually have numbers on how many people died as a result of, you know, the the contamination of of everything else with 700 dead animals floating about the place. My God. Yeah, see, in another, uh, you know, cellar in Doncaster, it's, Mom, we've got an abattoir now. <laughs> we're, going into, we're going into the pork business. Let's make some sausages. <laughs> All that spoiled meat. But because this was the Victorian era by this stage, yeah. well, you know, Georgian era, 
would mm. it would have been treated as a national tragedy. But this is the Victorian era, so two things immediately happened. MPs got really upset about property damage but didn't give a shit about people. Well, firstly, a relief fund was set up that Queen Victoria herself contributed to because she loved contributing mm. to a good relief fund for people who lived in, in the other bits of England that she didn't visit very often. Yeah. So she she loved giving money to the people of the North. Um, in, in, instead of accidentally going there. <laughs> yeah, oh no, she didn't want to go there. Um didn't she famously have the curtains drawn on her train when she was like as soon as she left the station until she got to the um the nice bit she was going to yeah she only ever went to Scotland didn't she no apparently she did visit um Lancaster Castle once as well yeah. her her and Albert stayed there so that's nice was it well, it must have been they they did stay over yeah by all accounts Albert seems to have been a decent chap we should probably do we should do something about him one day we 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 covered we covered him in the great exhibition. I mean, he was he seemed a, a happy guy there. He was just really interested in new things. Yeah, the, the, my favorite story about him was that he um, like the, the one significant diplomatic intervention he ever made was we basically accidentally declared war on America during the eighteen fifties when we would have like got absolutely kicked because at the time we had a small standing army and it was all in India. <laughs> And the Americans had just finished fighting a civil war. <laughs> we were pretty tooled up as a result. <laughs> and we sent them a really, really snotty letter. And he basically like took, got, got his hands on it, sort of quietly edited all the horrible parts out and sent it, then sent it on without telling anyone. <laughs> Good for him. I don't know if that's true or not. But well, I it may have been that he, he was the one who suggested to Queen Victoria that um, it would be good if they sort of said that everyone should contribute a day's wages and Queen Victoria gave £200 wow which she was getting paid a lot <laughs> yeah which suggests she believes she was worth the equivalent today of £24,000 a day I mean she was the Empress of India at the time as I, I believe yeah but that's 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 the value she placed on a day of Queen Victoria's work was the equivalent of £24,000 did Queen Victoria ever work that's a question for the ages <laughs> well she she was busy being head of state that's it's a full-time job. You don't get to stop when you sleep. <laughs> you do. You're doing it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> How many people are working at three in the morning? I'm not. She was. <laughs> yeah. She was getting paid too. Anyway. Um, overall, they managed to earn uh, earn. They managed to raise forty-two thousand pounds in then money. Jesus Christ. Um. So that was that was pretty good. Yeah, that's a huge amount. But like I said, this is the Victorian era, and two things happened. And the second thing that happened was the valley quickly became a tourist hotspot, as the well-to-do wanted to go for a look at the complete devastation of Northerners. <laughs> and this was going up to the to the unflooded higher portions of the valley, so you could look down at the um, mutilated and bloated bodies that were still being recovered from the wreckage two months later. Tarquin, I've brought a telescope. Oh, how droll. Oh, how very droll. So you can imagine you're there picking bits of family members out of what used to be your house and livelihood. Yeah. And you've lost your kids, you've lost you, your husband, you you've lost up, your dad. <laughs> you look up to the higher banks of the valley and you see... Some toff wearing a hat. <laughs> with a nice picnic blanket laid down and a bottle of champagne. Oh, he, look at the grief, look at the grief. Isn't it wonderful? It's almost like they're people. <laughs> because... The Victorians were the most morbid people that have ever existed. The idea that modern people and their obsession with true crime makes them morbid, compared to the Victorians, we are rank amateurs. 
We well, yeah, so bad. One, one wonder through a cemetery will tell you that much. <laughs> you know, we don't take pictures with the corpses of our family members. The Victorians I mean, did. Let's let, let's give Instagram and TikTok a few years before we say that that's definitively oh, no, not going to happen. I have seen one or two um, Insta pictures of people in an open casket, like last time with my gram gram, or you know, Nana would have wanted it this way. I I oh, I miss you, Gramps. I hear, hearing stuff like that makes me want to kill everyone on earth and then myself. Mm. Now, eventually, over £450,000 was paid out in compensation, which is Jesus. over £57 million today. As if Sheffield's worth that much. So, £57 million worth of damages. Yeah, but none of it went, almost none of it went to, like, the people. Oh, no, and all the business owners. <laughs> yeah, of course. And the people who are probably all in London. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't even notice. But, you know, somebody's got to pay that 57 million, which means you need somebody to blame, don't you? Oh, Christ, it was bloody leather boy again, wasn't it? Well, yeah, initially, the blame was laid at the feet of John Leather and John Gunson. But they made the claim that the dam had been damaged by landslides, and as a result, the disaster could not be blamed on the construction. Act of God. Yeah, yeah and Leather also pointed to the five other dams he had built to similar designs that hadn't collapsed. So he, he, he literally did. The five out of six dams that I built to this design <laughs> are still stood. It was a problem with the, the land it, it, around you know Sheffield it, it, itself. You know what it reminds me of? Uh, it's, it's an episode of Brass Eye in... In 1862, no one died. In 1863, no one died. In 1865, someone died. <laughs> what is that episode? It's not. It's not. Um, is it the drugs one? Maybe the drugs one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, watch Brass Eye. <laughs> the, the problem was. Well, the, the problem for one of the Johns was that they kind of accepted this excuse and went right. This completely absolves John Leather. Uh, but not guilt. John Goodson. <laughs> John Gunson was not absolved of guilt, and all this did was left him much Holding like the can. <laughs> George Leather Jr. had been 12 years before as the one person that people could point to and say, he did it. Jesus. That seems unfair. <laughs> like, either both or not, you know what I mean? <laughs> because John Leather's reputation remained intact, he was able to move on, and he founded a train manufacturing company the same year as the flood eventually selling his new train manufacturing company in 1871 for a cool £25,000, allowing him to retire in comfort. Nice. Yes, yeah, so he sold it for what he sold it for just over what Queen Victoria makes in a day. And that allowed him to retire in comfort. Well, yeah, nobody ever said that an autocracy was fair. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, a smaller dam was finished near to the original site in 1875, which still stands to this day. Did, did John Goodgen, oh, I keep pronouncing his name wrong, you know what I mean, did he build John, it? No, John Goodson. <laughs> um, the Sheffield Water Company, they, no, they stood by him huh. in that they gave him a job uh, where he didn't really get to do anything, but he could continue drawing a wage away from the public eye and then Given that he'd quiet, never, ever get a job as an engineer yeah, ever again. Anywhere. And then quietly allowed him to retire. Because the the Sheffield Water Company didn't personally blame him that much, mm. but it was much better that he was getting the blame 
than the, the Sheffield Water Company. <laughs> so they allowed him to take all the blame and almost paid him as a sorry. It's like, well, so, sort of like backwards hush money. Yeah, we're not we're not going to stand up and say, well, no, actually, you know, we we were the people who signed off on this. We were the people who paid to commission this. We were the yeah, people. Ultimately, who, it's our responsibility. Yeah, yeah. They're like, well, we'll pay you so that we don't have to do that, and you'll get to retire quietly. Although John Gunson did not live long into his retirement. He was yeah. racked with guilt, and he, he died relatively... I mean, even for this time, I think he was in his 50s that he died. Yeah. He was not He was not a happy man. And bless him, it wasn't really his fault. Mm. I mean, until we... If we never got a definitive answer on what caused the crack, we can't definitively blame anyone, really, no. I suppose. They're, I mean, it... I'm willing to believe um, John Leather that it was due to some subsidence Slippage and stuff. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, on the on the banks of the dam that just um, changed the amount of pressure that was being put on the the, the, nice. the load as it was and where it was being put on, which you know is fair enough. Um, but that is the story about how the two biggest dam collapses in British history were linked to a single family. That is actually unbelievably ridiculous. Yeah. In Given the, the number of engineers that were floating around Victorian oh, yeah. Britain, <laughs> it could have been anyone. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of them were building dams. You know, this this issue that Sheffield had about needing to suddenly build multiple dams, this was the same with every industrialised town and city. So, Across the north, anywhere yeah. near a valley. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you've got all of the mill towns, you've got Blackburn, Burnley, all of East Lancs, they were having to build dams left, right and centre. You've got around Manchester, as they were getting loads of people in. Just everywhere this was happening, it just so happens that the two biggest disasters happened in Yorkshire, and both of them were done by an uncle and his nephew. It's fairly unbelievable coincidence, frankly. I don't really have much more to add than that. It's just ridiculous. But it does, it does in many ways, kind of everything that happened kind of it kind of highlights how close the Victorian society was to, um, like, pure libertarianism. You know, like no regulations, no no real rules, and like they like nowadays. Imagine mm. a civil engineer is blamed conclusively for the for the loss of one hundred and two lives and all that money and stuff. He wouldn't. It wouldn't just be. And now we socially revile him. It would be like a full criminal prosecution, personal comment. He'd be ruined. You know, like mm. and possibly in jail. Probably in jail. Are you Back saying then he wouldn't was, be able to start a train company? Yeah, but like even even <laughs> even. Even the uncle, like from before, who like who did get the blame, but suffered no actual personal, financial, or criminal consequences. No, no, no. Like that—that's—that's that's full on lawlessness, isn't it? Well, it's it's funny you should mention that because like, it might not, it, it might not have been fair that he got the blame, but he did get the blame. Like you know, from every legal like view, not from a you know. It's not correct, but he did get the blame. Well, the problem is the people who are deciding how to allocate blame aren't going to blame committees and companies because they're committees and companies. No, no, no. no but that's, the idea yeah, that blame can be, you know, especially in a criminal sense, can to be an idea, to, yeah. yeah, a group. Yeah, I, no, I get that, but that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that that's that's very close to full lawlessness. Like these <laughs> these guys, they built the dam, they contracted out a guy to build the dam. I'm going back to the first one here, not the second yeah, yeah. one. They didn't, you know, none of it was proper. He tried to fix it off his own back without getting paid, and kudos to him for all of that. And the poor bugger ended up carrying the can for it. But the, like, the fact that it's completely wrong that he carried the can is not the point. The point is, he did carry the can, and he still didn't have any legal or criminal consequences. Um, 
No, it's just or social... financial consequences. Yeah, that's insane. Like that, that doesn't that 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 makes and, and it's true of the other one as well. Like John Good, I keep getting his sodding name. I don't know why I can't. I want to say Goodman. Gunson. Gunson. I, I don't know why. Poor John maybe, Gunson. And maybe we think because John Goodman's in my head all the time. I just love the Flintstones movie. But, um, <laughs> if it helps like, to to picture him as John Goodman. No, that wouldn't help because now I'm just going to keep saying John Goodman instead okay. of John Gunson. We all know what you mean. We're all friends <laughs> yeah. here. That dude. Yeah. Like, going back to him, like, he didn't actually suffer any... He, he carried the can for it, and that that's slightly more unclear. But, you know, if we take the engineers that there were, and it was just land slippage, completely unavoidable. It wasn't fair for him to carry the can either. But he suffered no actual punitive consequences of any type beyond the social sort of pariah status <laughs> and personal guilt. But that's not, like legally mandated it's that's a fully law to me that's like a fully lawless situation like horrendous things happened in theory the system worked up to the point of finding someone whose fault it was and then they did nothing about that that's nuts well actually you know in the aftermath of the second uh, big yorkshire dam disaster yeah. the government finally decided they might need to bring in some regulations to ensure that independent inspections would take place at any major public works before and they could be put into service. So it's basically this birth of the health and safety executive. Yeah, they they basically said, well, <clears throat> the problem with having the people who designed something, uh, you know, inspect it to see that it's fit for purpose is they have a vested interest. In finding that it is fit yeah, for purpose. Because then they can sign it off and they can get their payment and they can move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, but to me, it does feel as though that should have happened after the first collapse. <laughs> You know, the first time multiple people died because the dam collapsed, that was probably the point at which you want to say... Um, I don't know. I think the difference is because, you know, the first one had killed some villagers in a village who mm. basically had, uh, you know, they, they contributed to the local economy, but they didn't really touch Matter. the sides, whereas... Nationally, yeah. If you flood Sheffield, it's probably going to have a knock-on yeah. effect on the amount of steel products that are coming out for at least a few weeks. Yeah. The, um, the whole empire feels that one, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that was when the government had to sort of... It's like, now it affects us. Yeah, we've, really yeah. got, we've really got to do something about it. But, yeah, there you go. Classic Aristos. So that is, yes, that is the Great Sheffield Flood of, 18, <laughs> yeah, of 1864. And the pre-Great Sheffield Flood. The warm-up flood. The warm-up flood, yes. The, the... <laughs> tribute act. No, it can't be a tribute act. It came first.